three guys that live in Australia, Nevin Whitber, Ben Whitber, and Mike Beaton, two brothers and a friend. They met through a common interest, motorcycles, of course, adventure riding, and over the years they began to ride together and they sort of refined their ride into a a type of machine. Now, I I say machine because they plan their rides with the precision of a well-oiled machine. Everything from route planning on a phone app that they all carry to repair gear and parts, who carries what, no redundancy that isn't required, the correct amount of fuel and water required for each section, right on down to the personal items, even ensuring that they have trimmed their nose hairs right before they leave. No, I'm serious about that. Now just wait, you're going to hear more about that and a lot more. Everything is on a checklist. Each team member has responsibilities and they all travel on the same page, so to speak, meaning they they know how to ride together. They've got rules that they all follow and agree on. In fact, they even have a rule for when to stop for fuel and how long they're going to stop for. And before you think this is going too far, you have to realize it works for them. Now, to give you an idea, the adventure portion of the trip that we're about to talk about is called the Gibb River Road. Now, it's up in northern Australia. That's about 3,000 kilometers or about 1,800 miles from their home. And I think by the end of the trip, they end up doing around 8,000 kilometers, which is somewhere, I think, just shy of 5,000 miles in about three weeks' time. Well, the real adventure begins when they hit the Gibb River Road with remote wilderness, over 50 wild river crossings, of course, the host of deadly animals that Australia has, including crocodiles, which, which they claim don't mind sharing the pool with them when they swim. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Payne. Bill Bragoo. Helga Pettis. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. I'm Marissa Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. CyclePump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com The area that we're talking about right now is called the Kimberley Wilderness Area. It's located in northwest Australia. And what these three riders, Nevin, Ben, and Mike, are aiming for is called the Gibb River Road. Now, the Gibb River Road is is just sort of a section of a longer portion called the Savannah Way Road Trip, which crosses Australia, northern Australia, from east to west or west to east, depending on which way you're going. The Gibb River Road section is well known to four-wheelers as sort of the ultimate route for rugged, scenic, remote, and sparsely serviced areas. But for this group, it's an excellent adventure motorcycle route. So, my name's Nevin. Uh, I live in Perth in Western Australia. And 
for work. I'm actually saving the planet. Um, I work for a company who uh, restores landscape systems on degraded farmlands and places like that, um, driven by the, the the carbon market, I suppose, is, is the reality. But forestry is my core background and I guess it's great to be able to use those skills now to do something healthy for the planet. Uh, my name's Mike Beaton. I'm also from Perth, Western Australia. Uh, I'm a insurance broker uh, specialising in maritime insurance, insuring vessels uh, and uh, marine cargo, amongst other things. Yeah, my name's Ben. I live in Bunbury in the southwest of Western Australia. My job role is overseeing contractors maintaining and looking after the internet network in Australia called the MBNK in the WA regional space. Ben, Mike, Nevin, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I'm, I'm, I didn't get Nevin's last name. Nevin, what's your last name? Whitba. Nevin and Ben, you guys related? Fully. What's the relationship there? We share the same mum and dad. The same mum and dad. So you're brothers. That's what we call it. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, that's just brothers. That's, you just say that, you know? So, okay. so how do you... Did like, I say that to start with? No, I don't, I don't know. Obviously, Sorry, brothers, I mean, you guys, you grew up together, right? Yep. Okay. So you know each other. <laughs> Where does Mike come in? And how do you guys all get to, to riding together? Um, I, I could probably answer that question, Jim. Um, Mike and I live reasonably close to each other and our children go to the same school. So uh, through our kids, boys, uh, we we met um, and we worked out that we both had an interest in uh, adventure bike riding um, and, you know, we, we agreed to go on a ride together once just to eyeball each other, I suppose, and see if we're any good. And you know, we both passed the test, so here we are a few years on. I can't remember how many years, they might could be three or four now. Yeah, three or four, yep. And um, we've done a huge amount of riding together, all sorts of different scenarios, um, short, long, very difficult, easy. Uh, and, you know, Mike's a pretty easy bloke to get along with, unlike my brother. And so he makes a good... Um, a good addition to our traveling party. Now, Mike, how long have you been riding motorcycles? Uh, well, I'm 50 and I've been riding since I was 12. I um, had a, well, my neighbor when I was 12, his father bought, uh, and I think it was an 80cc and a, a 125cc bike uh, that myself and my brother um, were wrapped with as well. So we're all riding around the bush um, till we were. I don't know, 15, 16, I guess. And then from there, got our driver's license, got our motorcycle license, had a bunch of 250cc bikes, probably four or five, and then progressed from there to, you know, the typical early male thing, you know, GSXRs and ZZRs and sports bikes. Um, and eventually um, came back from, uh, a holiday was was not depressed, but certainly was was wanting to do something else in life, and um, was watching Long Way Round and Long Way Down again. Um, so, uh, I'm another person that um, can thank Ewan and Charlie for the for the journey. 
and uh, bought ended up buying a GS eight hundred um, that within twelve months had, I I traded for a, a GS twelve hundred. But uh, yeah, so that's how I started. So a long, long time ago, in the bush. Uh, Nevin, how about you? Uh, in terms of motorbike mm-hmm. history, um, Ben and I grew up in a rural environment, um, so motorbikes are part of the you know core of daily work in that kind of farm world, I suppose you'd call it. Um, and you know we progressed from riding bikes on the farm to riding our mates' bikes for fun. Um, and, uh, you know, a bit like Mike, when I could qualify for, to get my motor's bike licence, that's what I did. Um, had a motorbike licence or had a motorbike for many, many years before I actually owned a car. And, you know, I'm in my 50s now and been riding bikes ever since. Uh, probably about the same as Mike, really, about yeah, that 10 to 12-year-old kind of bracket. And I suppose like Mike too, most of my early riding history was on sports bikes, um, migrating to big sports tourers, spent a lot of time riding around on sports tourer-type roads, in other words, bitumen and, um, you know, more typical tourist routes. And Ben and I got to a point where we'd kind of run out of places to go uh, that were local and the adventure bike um, the adventure bike what do you call it the genre I suppose started to appeal to us because we felt we could go on rides and if we came across a dirt road or a rough road it wouldn't matter we could just keep going and so I've only been in adventure bike riding for I think it must be only about three three or four years about the same time as I've known Mike Um and, you know, I, I wish I had been introduced to adventure bike riding when I was much younger because there's just a such a larger scale of different things and, and places you can go and, and things you can experience on an adventure bike, whereas on the sports tour bikes, you, you're quite limited. Yeah, it really changes everything, doesn't it? And it also changes the way that you ride because when you're on the street, there's, um, you know, even if you ride with friends, there, there's a certain um, organization to it that, that sort of comes naturally, I think, a lot of times with the street. And you also have the freedom to just go and, and come and go when you when you please. But with when it comes to adventure riding, you tend to make a trip like you guys have done. And um, you sort of have to depend on each other throughout that trip. So it changes the dynamics in your group. Have you noticed that? Have you experienced that, Ben? Uh, look, by nature, um, very much a precision planner and adventure riding for ourselves we've worked out you can you can only ride with a select few people who have the same level of thinking mm-hmm. yeah you, you just, have to can i just jump in there jim and say how, how boring was nevin's rendition of bikes like oh, oh, it's much more interesting than that <laughs> <laughs> the um yeah the the group is is can be very difficult and i i think that often shows up i think it shows up more with adventure riding um, the, the ability to get together. And that's why I was asking you guys how you got to know each other because, you know, obviously brothers, you, you grew up together, you can survive together most likely. Mike is the is the, the the extra person, so to speak, and you found a way that, or at least you found that you all get along very well together as far as the group goes and riding for uh, adventure rides. Now, when you're on adventure rides, how do you how do, you do your planning? Um, who, who, is there one person taking care of that? 
<laughs> it's not me, Jim. <laughs> so I'll, 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 I'll jump in there. If go you on, then. Go for go it. Yeah. No, you go. You go. Jim, very conservative by definition, um, probably through life experience and the like. Yep. And um, for me, everything has to be has to be checked off for me to be comfortable on a ride. Um, I, I, I suffered a degree of anxiety before any ride because of the unknowns and the potentials and the what ifs. So to overcome that, it, it, it's, it's planning. And uh, over many iterations, have put together a check sheet, even down to trimming the nose hairs. Because you know you get the, you, you, you get which the is actually important. <laughs> I don't see how that's important for an adventure ride. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, Have you ever not ridden down the highway section and your nose is itching? It's because the hairs inside your nose are vibrating from the airflow, and it just it you end up scratching your nose every two minutes. Well, that, that's a tip yeah. we have not heard on Adventure Rider Radio, <laughs> and, and I'm so glad we got that now. So trim your nose hairs before you go to avoid itchy nose syndrome. Absolutely. Well, we, we progressed from shoving um, earplugs up our nostrils to prevent nose hairs from wiggling to trimming the nose hairs. We thought that was a little bit more refined. Mike, do you, so, do you suffer that, from this, or is this a family no, thing? For, no, yeah, I was just, I was going to jump in, Jim, and say this is a whipper thing. This is not <laughs> not it's not a normal thing. It might be on the checklist, but I, I might have ticked that box without actually completing the exercise. <laughs> so, so Ben, what you were talking about, how you're, you're very um, well. The the word that popped into my mind was anal about your planning. So that, that would be word. accurate. <laughs> so you, you make up the checklist, and then you hand it out to everyone, and then they go through the checklist. And, and check things off. I don't, I don't care what they do with it. Okay, so as long as I'm happy. They don't have to report back to you. They don't send the, the checklist <laughs> no, back to you and say, here no. we go, I filled it out. I just have to be comfortable with my own ride, Jim. And, uh, you know, there's many packs of the day before because I don't go for a ride for a day or two days. It, it's, it's for it more than that. So it's got to be comfortable on the bike. The bike's got to be tight. I, I believe a neat and tight bike Um is an easy bike to ride. So um, we've gone through many iterations of setting up, spent many thousands of dollars. The adventure um, companies spend money on getting things right. Um, it's just about get it, getting it right so that you can enjoy the ride and not worry about all the luggage falling off. I, I, I can't stand the edges of adventure riders with stuff strapped all over their bike. So so for, for me, it's got to be nice, tight, and compact, and I can only achieve that through through some pretty um, precision planning. Now, Nevin, but, Ben's your I, brother. Are you the same way? Um, not quite as bad, but I think we both <laughs> we both appreciate having a neat, organised setup. And so the two of us have gone through the journey of you know making sure we got the the optimal kind of setup that gives you easy access to things you want to get to quickly and, um, you, you know, if you've got to set up your tent in the rain, you, you can do that fairly easily. If you need to grab something to eat on the road, you can do that fairly easily. So I, I guess it all sounds a bit anal, but if you saw us riding past, I think you would just think, you know, that was a nice, neat setup. But for us, I, I think Ben and I both, we, we hate inefficiency and... So it, it probably sounds like 
we don't have an enjoying, relaxed ride because we're so worried about everything being right and in the right place and that. But for us, everything in the right place, ready for when you need it and you know exactly where to go and get it, that's part of what makes the ride easy and enjoyable. And, uh, you know, there's been a number of times where the other people and riders benefit from that because we, we're able to have things on hand that are, are useful for everyone, you know, whether it's a, from a simple thing as a flat tyre or, or a loose mirror on a GS, which is a pretty common thing. Uh, we, we, can, we can deal with that pretty quickly or, or stop on the side of the road and have a cup of tea or coffee, eh, Mike? Yep, yep. And I was just going to add, Jim, I'm, I'm not as anal, but, you know, perhaps – Bring it back a notch or two, but I'm, I also hate inefficiency. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of, I have, I've missed out on all the iterations over the decades that these two have been riding together, having come to them late in the in the scheme of things. But it actually works really well for me as well, and I've learned stuff from from them in terms of what to take and what not to take. Um, even down to the the trip that we'll we'll get to. Um, obviously, there's no point taking three lots of tools. We've all got GSs. They're all they're all similar, so that that helps. Um, you know, Nevin took um, the tools, and um, Ben took the puncture repair kit and had a spare rear tire. Um, but the important things, um, well, I took the first aid kit, but importantly, I also had the coffee. Um, Absolutely, Nevin had the whisk to make the to whisk up the milk in the morning um, <laughs> over the little stove. But that was the most important thing because if we didn't have coffee in the morning, all hell would have broken loose. Hang on a second, a whisk for whisking milk in the morning? What? Is yeah, that? like a cappuccino. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we don't <laughs> percolate our coffees. We- right. Well, and do you have a cappuccino machine? That you take with you? No, Nanopresso. You've heard of those, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so think one of those. Yes. <laughs> you you so, sound yeah. very dismissing there, Jim. <laughs> so, so Mike, you, you're you're not quite as anal as, as Nevin and Ben, the brothers, but you are somewhat anal. So I, I can see how this all fits together. Now, Mike, when you were learning to pack your bike with to go on a trip with the brothers, did they show up like with you know measuring tape and a square and whatnot, and just check your pack to make sure that, <laughs> that you were that you were acceptable to go with them, or did they just let uh, you? No, but but there, there's certainly sideways glances between the two of them. Um, that I that I notice when I, I do something a certain way, and they just go, "Oh, that's not going to work." Um, and I was given the nickname of of BP for the trip for British Petroleum because the 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 tank or the uh, the, the fuel what do we call them rotor packs the fuel rotor packs I had was enormous, so I thought that was appropriate, but obviously it wasn't. <laughs> but doesn't matter. So the the way you guys said you split things up and you and you're taking you know one taking tools one taking first aid etc that commits you to all stick together so that is the way you ride you if, if there's a breakdown everybody stops nobody veers off and goes home correct exactly. yep and I suppose if I could just add in there Jim the what drives that and Ben alluded to this earlier is Western Australia is quite a big place. So if you want to go for a reasonable ride, camp in a reasonable spot that's not full of people, you've got to ride a fair way to get there. And so, um, you know, quite some time ago, Ben and I started this thing between ourselves called 1001 uh, and 2002, which is where you do 1,000 Ks in one day or 2,000 Ks in two days. And, you know, that was just, you know, to get to where you had to go. And so you've got to have a fair bit of gear to travel those sorts of Ks and be be on the road for those number of days. 
But at the same time, you can't have this massive packaged up bike with every bloody implement you can think of. You've got to be a bit more efficient than that. So having the three of us working together on the same bike helps because that minimises uh, duplication. Um, you know, you can share those things but also have a tight pack that gives you everything you want for an extended adventure ride. Did you guys all buy the same bike by design for doing this? Uh, I I had a um, the GS1200 before I met these two um, and they never happened to have a the same and and Ben yours is slightly newer but it's it's the same again GS1200 or R1200 yeah. GS uh, if I can just add a comment there too Jim I, I, it wasn't deliberately that we set out to have the same bike it's just that I think because we had the same set of expectations and requirements of a bike we all ended up at the same place so when I was looking at buying an adventure bike I I rode the Africa Twin I rode the the Triumph Tiger. I rode the GS. Um, you know, shaft drive was an important uh, concept for us, so that knocked out quite a few bikes. That's Ben and I. Um, and me. Uh, yeah, the shaft was quite important. Um, I rode the Tenere 1200, you know, which was a shaft drive here in Australia. I'm not sure if you got the same model over there. But out of all that, the bike that ticked the most boxes was the GS for our requirements. So, you know, it wasn't deliberately intended that way, but we just ended up on the same machines. Nevin, you had an 800 before this? No, that was Mike. Yeah, oh, that was me. Mike. Yeah, I had a an F800. Why did you go from the 800 to the 1200? What was the reason for that? Uh, yeah, had the F800 for a year uh, and went with uh, two other friends to Tasmania. Uh, on the east coast and did a, a lap around Tasmania on bikes that we'd hired um, and I happened to hire um, an R1200GS, wanted to because I, I wanted to ride one and fell in love with it on day one. Um, so literally came home and put a business case to my wife and <laughs> within a month I'd, I'd, I'd traded it. Sorry, you, you did what with your wife? Uh, <laughs> a business case. If I, I've, well, I've only had this bike for twelve months, the eight hundred. So I, I had to uh, give her the reasons and the rationale for for why I needed to have the twelve hundred. So that was a business case, right? I see what <laughs> it, you said. It worked, and it was approved, and and you, yeah, yeah, you yeah, went ahead yeah. and and got this bike. Yep. What what? So what is it that you fell in love with with the twelve hundred? Um, the center of gravity being lower. I was was um, helpful, I thought. Um, the shaft drive, as Nevin said before, I liked. Um, because we do a lot of riding in the bush, the last thing I want to do is to have a problem with the chain and have it snap or something. And I, I'd been on rides where that had happened to, to people on other bikes. Um, the, the 800 had tubed tyres. Um, I like the idea of having tubeless tyres. Um, having cruise control was nice as well. Um, and as again, as Nevin said before, we have to travel um, a lot of distance to go to places to ride off road. So, being comfortable um, is is a big plus if you're going to do four, five, six thousand k's. Um, you you, you want to be as comfortable as you can. So it ticked all those boxes. I don't want to jump right into the the trip right now, but but you guys did a thousand kilometers on the first day. 
And, and that sort of stood out to me. That That's a lot of miles. Is that what you're doing? Is that what you're talking about? You, you're roughly going a thousand kilometers to sort of get somewhere decent for you to ride or what you guys consider to be, you know, something acceptable for you? Well, I, I can uh, embellish that <laughs> a little bit more if you like, uh, Jim. Uh, yes, a thousand Ks is, is a long way, but just for giggles, Nevin and I decided um, we'd go and camp on the, uh, the Great Australian Bight in South Australia. Now, we're in Western Australia, so we left at 12.30 at night and we didn't stop till we got to South Australia, which is 1,000 miles away in the same day. 1,600 kilometres. Yep. yep. And camped on the Great Australian Bight just because. So that's just, that's just we're just accustomed to doing that. We, we live in a state that's four times the size of Texas. So... The, the tyranny of distance is huge. You, you've just got to you've just got to do those kilometers in order to get to the places that are interesting. Because is and that's because the place that you live is not very interesting. I guess uh, that's not true. It's there's lots of opportunities for short, you know, um, short more common trips around the southwest of Western Australia. Absolutely, but you know, adventure riding is partly about heading off into more remote places where less people go uh, and more uh, rugged terrain, rugged isolation. Terrain. Yeah, interesting landscapes that are not seen by everybody. And, you know, in WA, there, there is a lot of that because it is so big. And I guess because we've, you know, we've lived here and travelled around here all our lives, uh, a lot of the close stuff, we've been there and done that. And so now we want to look at the stuff that's further out. So you you do have to ride a bit, and you know a thousand kilometres in one day is is kind of nothing to us now. Um, you know it's it's part of the fun, and it's not speeding either. It's it's just doing the speed limit, hundred and ten kilometres an hour. So it's you just leave early and and take your time. But we all stop at the same time, and we all yeah. fuel up at the same time, and all eat and drink at the same time. So it works out very well. It's an efficiency thing as well, I think. Yeah. Mm. To, to cover those sort of distance easily, you've got to be efficient with your stops because it's your stops where you, you chew up time. And we've just got good at that. How do you get efficient at your stops? Okay. Well, one thing. You, you refer to the checklist. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we have a couple of rules around that. So if someone stops to have a leak on the side of the road, then everyone does. Because otherwise you're going to do that three times instead of one. When you stop at a garage to refuel, everybody refuels because you don't want to have to do another stop just for another person. If you if you're going to buy something to eat at the garage, then you don't buy something that takes half an hour to get cooked in the back kitchen. You know, you buy something that's there, ready and available to chew now. And you know, if you want to cover large distances, you've got to be a more ruthless like that with your time. If you're doing less, sure, you can indulge and, and have a coffee and, and a dine-in experience. But if you want to do a 1,000 kilometers in a day, you, that you that's not what you're doing that day. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that makes sense, Nevin. Um, how long do you, how much time do you allot for a pee? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm well into my 50s, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's I not you, that would, long, you had a time right off the bat. No, look, it's 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 not that 
in spite of Ben's desire to detail it that much, we're not actually that bad. Yeah, no, I, I actually like it. And I totally get what you're saying. It's just funny to listen to it. But but so three yeah. of the same bikes. You have all the same bikes. Are you wearing the same equipment, et cetera? No, no. it's all, all got our own okay, variations so it's all, on that. It's all different. So you don't the only it. common thing that we have is the Cardo communication system because it works well. Right. I was going to say, you could get a lot more efficient if you'd wear the same clothing as well, because you could probably <laughs> find some way to, you know, rotate clothing through. Adam, just down, a thought. You, Jim, you can write that I, down. I, maybe think about it. Later. I don't want you to get the wrong impression here, Jim. It's not like the whole trip is like that. It's just that on the day where you need to cover a lot of distance, it, it has to be a little bit regimented like that. Otherwise, you run out of time. Mm-hmm. Well, but, once we but, get to our destination and, you know, we're actually on the adventure part of the trip, you know, the, the routine and the regiment is, is disappears. It, it's much more freestyle. Right. And do you but guys- I was going to say, Jim, that uh, my underwear is labelled Monday to Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't, you don't swap that around, right? You just, that's just yours. <laughs> just because so, we're brothers jim we're not that close mate <laughs> well, i was thinking of, of efficiency you know that's it's all inefficiencies but um okay so um let, let's talk about this trip you know where does the idea for this trip come up and what makes this different from other trips that you've done nev you go is that my is that my answer well what, what was your idea wasn't it or was it ben's or both of you I don't know, Benny. Can you remember? Well, Jim, I can't particularly recall who had the idea, but the Gibb River Road in Australia is an iconic road for all Australians to do who, who love um, adventure, whether it's four-wheel drive or, or motorcycle. So probably the, the formulation of where is the next big place for us to go? And so it was... The, the Kimberley region in WA is the wilderness in Western Australia, the remote wilderness. It's uh, iconic. Um, it is full of diversity. Uh, so it was far enough away to challenge us with the distance-wise. So we set planning about a year out um, to do that. And because we had some quite iconic places to go to in that trip that were right off the beaten track, we had to really set ourselves up for um, doing this unsupported uh, with enough clothing, food, water, all carried on the bikes. So, and fuel. Yeah, there's just just an extension of where's the next big ride for us. And at this particular point, it was uh, the Gibb River Road. So the Gibb River Road, uh, referred to as the GRR, I believe, and uh, this yeah. is in the Kimberley region. So, uh, Mike, can you talk more about the Kimberley region to sort of give a description of what that is and where it is? Uh, yes. So the Kimberley, I guess, it's certainly in the northwest of Western Australia. Um, Perth is the capital city, which is in the southwest. And, and the distance from Perth to sort of the start of the Kimberley is two and a half, three thousand kilometers away. Um, the sort of the, the main town up there is Broome, which is a, a sort of a touristy town. Um, and um, the Gibb River Road at, at uh, sort of the Broome End is is a couple of hundred kilometres, probably more than that actually, probably 300 kilometres from Broome. Um, and the Gibb River Road runs through the Kimberley, um, sort of from the southwest to the northeast to another town called Wyndham, which is the northernmost town in the Kimberley or in WA. Um, but 
the the region itself is is magnificent. You know, the 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 scenery is completely different from the southwest. Um, wide, open um, rocks. The animals are different. Um, the weather's different uh, at any time of the year to what we're used to in the southwest. Um, it's remote. There aren't many people. Uh, there's a lot of Aboriginal communities up there, which is good. Um, it, it's just, it's just completely different. You could, you know, you, you could treat it as being in another country. It's, it's that different to to what we're used to. I guess is that sort of a enough of a description for you to to yeah. whet your appetite? And, and it's coastal, right? I mean, you've got a beautiful coastline there, incredible beaches, that sort of thing. Uh, not, 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 not so much. Yeah, not really. Like no. No. The, the the coast of Kimberley, Jim, is so rugged that mo- the large majority of it is only accessible by boat. Yep. And um, and that's actually one of the things that attracts me to it is I have a lot of clients that work up there that run charter boats that, that are based in Broome. And as Nevin says, the only place you can get to, um, you know, particular waterfalls or up certain rivers is via the coast. You, there's no road to, to get to there, you could fly in, in on a helicopter, I guess. Um, but there's you know, Australia's known for beaches, but certainly in the Kimberley, you you probably want to stay away from the beach because of a whole range of issues. The the primary one being saltwater crocodiles. Mm. Oh yeah, that's that's not good. And they they're they're right there along the beaches. Are they? It's funny because when I when I looked at stuff about the Kimberley, uh, one of the things that they showed as as a sort of an attraction was was this amazing beaches. And some of that would be Broome. Oh, yeah, I see. That would be Broome, and yeah. and you can go to the beach there, but there are crocs there every now and then, as well as um, is it Irigangi jellyfish, which can kill people, little jellyfish. Um, but yeah, that's probably. One of the few. Oh, there's, I guess there are a few beaches you can get to, but but it's it's uh, there's certainly not many. As far as crocodiles go, that's one question I had for you: is how do you know a place that you can swim and a place that you can't swim? Because I know you guys were swimming on this trip. So when you're in the Kimberley, in the wet season. Hey, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we've got a lot more great stuff we're going to talk about. So stay with us. Giant Loop, again, a company started by a rider and owned, still owned and run by a rider, Harold Cecil. You can't beat that because riders care about riding and they care about other riders. It's kind of in our DNA. Through that hard work of Harold and and the people who work for him and the, the dedication they have to the end user, Giant Loop has gained a reputation for tough light gear. In fact, their motto is go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. The Giant Loop difference is that they make bags for the job, so unnecessary weight and bulk are removed from their designs. That way they can focus on lighter, simpler approaches that serves the purpose, but without all the extra buckles and straps that are so common today. Giant Loop is well known for their loop style bag that that goes over any bike and you don't need a rack for it. And they have handlebar bags, tank bags, and some really nice looking panniers. Their website is giantloopmoto.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And by the way, you, you can find Giant Loop at all kinds of places that sell quality motorcycle gear. Giantloopmoto.com. Moto Camp Nerd. I like that name. It's a store for us riders that deals exclusively with camping gear for motorcycling. That's it. 
I think this is a great concept because if you've ever gone into a, an outdoor store and start talking about packing things in your motorcycle, well, you probably didn't find a kindred spirit. But at Camp Moto Nerd, well, the name says it all. They love camping and they love motorcycling. It's owned and operated by husband and wife team, Ben and Mary Williams from Trinity, North Carolina. And everything they stock is focused on us motorcycle campers. And they're careful about what they stock. They want good quality products to sell to us. And, and they actually stock the gear too. They don't do drop shipping or other arrangements. They are a store. They call it the motorcycle camping store because they say it's the only one of its kind. And I haven't seen one like this either. The website is motocampnerd.com. We've got the link on our website under sponsors. If you forget this, but motocampnerd.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Now, did you realize that IMS Products sponsors over 1,000 riders in all forms of motorcycle and ATV racing? And that almost every major off-road champion in the past two decades has used an IMS product. Why? Because IMS products has been building great products since 1976, and they bring that knowledge and the lessons learned over those years and meld it into every product they make, like their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, all built incredibly tough with cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, certified heat treating process, all built in the USA and warranted for life. I think it's one of the most functional mods that you can make to your bike. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. As far as crocodiles go, that's one question I had for you is how do you know a place that you can swim and a place that you can't swim? So when you're in the Kimberley, in the wet season, you don't swim. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Look, I mean, there there is a, a fair element of signage around the place just to warn people, but uh, generally speaking, if you're within any sort of proximity to the coast, you don't swim in the water because the saltwater crocodiles will be there. On the inland waters, there's freshwater crocodiles, which are – you know, they only grow up to about three, maybe four meters maximum. Um, but the most common size is probably a bit smaller than that, two to three meters. And they're not as aggressive as the saltwater crocodiles. So you can share the swimming pool with the freshwater crocodiles, but uh, only on the inland. <laughs> share the swimming pool with the freshwater crocodiles. I'm sorry, you know, not being from Australia, you'll have to excuse me for being alarmed by that, but that doesn't sound like a really smart thing to do. Um, the, the freshwater crocodiles are more, they're, they're much more conservative than the saltwater crocodiles. So the saltwater crocodiles are very aggressive, much bigger territorial um, and you, you you just don't get in the water anywhere where those guys are. But the freshwater crocodiles are generally smaller, uh, timid, a bit, bit more timid, keep to themselves a little bit more. So even they, though they look very similar, they're and they're happy to share. They're yep. happy to so share. Happy to share. <laughs> so we, when you, when you're swimming with these freshwater crocs, you just swim past each other, sort of thing, and <laughs> they tend to stay out of the way a bit more than that. They sun themselves on the rocks, and if you swim past the rocks, they, they will keep an eye out on you um, till the very last moment before they then flick off and, and disappear. Um, yeah. so away that, from us. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Into the water, though. 
Yes. Well, ninety percent of the time, they, you know, they they stay away. And is it just a, like a, not a concern at all? I mean, I, I hate to you know go after this point no, so not much, a but concern at all. It, we we did start the trip though, Jim. With well, I certainly did with with that concern of of keeping an eye out on any water that we crossed, even if we're on our bikes. Of you know, what if if there's something there that's going to jump at us, which they obviously don't do, but. Um, probably by day five, it was so hot that we were at a place called Mary's Pool. We were more than happy just to plonk ourselves in the water at the end of the day. Um, because, and we knew that there were freshwater crops there, um, but we just, it was just so hot um, and it was okay. It wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't an issue. Has there ever been an attack with a freshwater crocodile on a human? It'd have to be. I don't recall one, but there'd have to be. Mm-hmm. Talk about the Gibb River Road. What is that and what makes it so difficult? Um, uh, the, the Gibb River Road was originally a cattle track. It's a shortcut from uh, uh, essentially, I suppose you could say, Broome to Kununurra, which are the two major uh, towns in the Kimberley. And I think it's about 600-odd kilometres long, if I remember rightly. Mm. Uh, the other way to get from one to the other was more than double that distance, but the the I think the 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 iconic thing about the Gibb River Road is that it travels through very isolated, remote, rugged, and variable country, um, and and that's the attraction of it is that you really are out in the remote parts of Western Australia. What's it used for now? Um, there's, because of that attraction, it does have quite a strong level of tourist activity on it, but only in certain times of the year because the, it's a very tropical, it's far, it's close enough to the equator to be a very tropical, uh, climate. So a lot of the months of the year, it's just too hot, uh, too much rain that the country is inaccessible. You know, the Gibb River Road would be, would be too boggy, uh, and muddy to drive vehicles on. So I think there's only about uh, probably about five or five months of the year that is prime uh, time for the tourist activity, and the rest of the time it's just used for the you know cattle station owners up there who who you know use it to commute for one reason or another. But during the wet season, of course, they can't use it. Um, most of the property owners up there use helicopters or aeroplanes to get around in the wet season. Okay, so that's what I was wondering. So that's why it's maintained. Like this, it has a certain amount of maintenance to it. That's why it's kept open is because there is yes. some some use for it, commercial use in this case. Tourist and yeah, yeah, commercial use for the for the cattle industry. As far as tourists goes, that's for the experience of riding the Gibb River Road more than getting to the Kimberley area, right? I would think it's both. So is Kimberley cut off then without this road in the wet season? Uh, the wets, there the main road that is bitumen that goes from Broome to Kununurra can be traversed in the wet season, but the Gibb River Road can't be because it's not it's you know it's a dirt road. Mm-hmm. But but the road or the there are roads that connect the Kimberley region to the rest of the state that are paved roads, the Great Northern Highway, and, and well, there's only two, isn't there? Yeah. Okay, but but as far as tourism goes, you were saying that it's it's sort of needed for tourism, um, so tourists could still get to the Kimberley area without the Gibb River Road. They could, yes, but they will miss a lot of the 
the more spectacular side of it. Right. So it's a, it's an experience. And I imagine that's something that they sell with the area too, with the Kimberley area is the, you know, the whole Gibb River Road experience. Right. Four, four wheel drives, motorcycles. Do, do a lot of motorcycles do the route? I wouldn't say a lot, but the, um, it, it's not uncommon for sure. And caravans as well, Jim. People towing caravans or camper trailers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the road like? Uh, ben, can you just, just describe what it's like to ride? Yeah. It's patches of um, soft sand, which we call bulldust over here. Um, sand that you, you just can't tell the, the solidity of the surface from first inspection. So you've got to traverse very sandy sections of it. There's very uh, corrugated sections of the road. It's it's red, um, literally red in reflection of the, the country that's up there. At some places, it's quite wide because uh, we do have road trains use it during the, the dry season for the cattle stations. It winds its way through mesas, if you like, of um, outcrops of the, of the rocks, which uh, apparently this area was once uh, an ancient seabed. And so what we're seeing is the remnants of that ancient seabed as you wind your way through it. The, the road... Is, is generally wide enough for two vehicles to pass through. There are sections of it that have been upgraded to bitumen, generally the hilly sections, because if they didn't do that, no one would be able to get through it. Yeah, if, if I can add to that, Jim, like the Gibb River Road itself, when it's in reasonable condition, is not a bad road. And that's why Mike says you do see four-wheel drives with off-road caravans on there. but it can also get extremely rough and brutal to cars and, and bikes and, and, you know, trucks. So I, I think that's part of the reputation of the Gibb River Road is that when you go on it, you don't know if you're going to get it at a good time or if it's going to be really rough. Um, and, you know, there's lots of ruined cars on the side that haven't made the, the trip for one reason or another. But in terms of seeing the rugged country in the Kimberley, um, the Gibb River Road gets you to the roads that take you to those places. So most of the adventure riding challenges are off to the side of the Gibb River Road, not necessarily the Gibb River Road itself. Apart from the Pentecost crossing mm. at the <laughs> eastern end. Okay, so so as far as the difficulty goes, the level of difficulty for motorcycle riding, where does that lie in, in your, your experience? Maybe, Mike, you take that. Mm. Um, well, in, in our experience, because we do a lot of off-road riding, um, as, as Nevin's just said, the Gibb River Road itself was relatively straightforward. Um, certainly, there are sections where you have to be up on the pegs, um, but there are there's a, most sections you can be sitting down and quite comfortable. Um, uh, all the roads that are off to the to the side, to the left or the right, to go and visit something else, whether it be a, a waterfall or a rock pool or a tunnel or something like that, some of those roads were um, harder. Um, I think most people could do it if, if they apply themselves um, and take it easy and, um, you know, speed's the, the big thing um, if you've got it enough momentum to, to you can pretty much do anything if you haven't got enough momentum it's hard um, and you don't want to have too much um, one of the big fears that that we had was the amount of water that we knew we were going to have to 
across, um, whether it be a creek or a river or anywhere in between. Um, and we figured out the other day that we probably did at least 50 um, water crossings. 50? Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the first one would have been, I don't know, three inches deep. Um, and we were petrified <laughs> because it was quite long. Um, it was 200 metres long. Yeah, and we didn't, you know, we hadn't done it before, so we didn't um, know um, how deep it was going to be. And But by the, and we, we crossed that, got through the 200 metres and were ecstatic. Um, but by the end of the trip, you know, we'd probably do that, you know, standing up one-handed with our eyes shut. Um, because we just we, our confidence grew with all the water crossings, which was fantastic. And that was one of the reasons that I really enjoyed the trip was gaining that confidence. Although, having said that, and I'll bring this up before Ben does, I did drop the bike in uh, <laughs> the Frank River in about a millimeter of water. <laughs> but anyway, so <laughs> and I think Jim, if I can add there too, the we went there fairly early uh, at after the end of the wet season. So we knew we were going to encounter more water than most. But b- because the dry season is, is still quite hot and dry, the water crossings disappear fairly quickly as, the, as, as you get further into the tourist season. So most people that travel the Gibb River Road after probably May, well, in you know the month of May here, uh, would not experience the amount of water crossings we did. Um, but you know, that was one of the challenges that we had on the our Gibb River Road trip, and you know some of them were quite deep. And as Mike said, we you know we were pretty skilled at crossing those by the end of the trip. And that that's by design. You, you guys knew in advance that you were going to be hitting more water going at the time of year that you chose. What what we were wanting to do was see the waterfalls at their most spectacular possible. So you've got to go as as close to the end of the wet season as possible. But, you know, we didn't quite get that juggle right for one spot because the road was still closed um, for being too wet. Um, But a lot of the other spots where we went to the, you know, the the various sites we visited, water was a significant part of the, the scenery. It was really great. So I'm gathering then that the, this is an area that, um, like, as far as if you're talking to your other riding buddies, this is like the, you know, the, one of those those spots that everybody wants to go. Everybody wants to do this big trip to the Kimberley area, at least from your area. Absolutely. Right. So can we talk more about the planning of the trip? Ben, do you, do you want to take that? Talk more about um, what you had in mind. And, and did, did you actually plan it out as far as like stops and say, we're going to here, we're going to there, that sort of thing? Is that how you planned the trip? Yeah, look, I, I tend to be like that um, with every destination set out as to what we, when we're going to get there, um, how long we're going to take, where we need to be. And Nevin has moderated that back somewhat to, um, to be a little, little more fluid and flexible on the day, which, which is a necessary thing. So we, we started off with the plan just to get the first 1,000 Ks to give us a, a leapfrog into – the, the, the Pilbara area, which abuts the Kimberley. And from there, we um, went and did the rest of the trip. But, but as far as the planning goes, um, we used a mapping application to look at all the places that we needed to go. We thought about doing it up and down twice. Um, the, the variable in this, of course, was the opening of the roads, which was still up in the air. We had issues with COVID closures with some of the, the uh, remote communities that we may or may not be able to have access to or go through. So 
So planning wise was, like I said previously, over about 12, 12 months looking at it, anticipating, um, working out whether we needed to carry spares. For me, I, I decided I needed to take a spare tyre because one of the, the things that I was <laughs> really concerned about is what happens when we do out in the middle of nowhere when we do a tyre. And I can tell you, Jim, that tyre never came off the back. <laughs> <laughs> now, you guys are riding with comms, so you're talking to each other as you go? Yeah, we've got a car though. Yeah, you, you all do. And as far as um, for a backup for, you know, if everything goes wrong, you've got what, a satellite phone or a spot or something like that? Uh, ben has a spot. I use a Garmin InReach Mini. Um, it's not quite a satellite phone, but uh, two-way texting is more than adequate. And uh, we had a, you know, through the InReach Mini, we could communicate via text wherever we were with any number of people. And also, you know, the family back home or friends back home could uh, see where we were at any point in time on the trip. And uh, we had a habit of just sending an, you know, all okay message every night. So as we, we, we talked about earlier, um, you did a thousand kilometers in the first trip, which, which you guys are saying that that's no big deal for you. A yep. thousand kilometers. And you said it's on bitumen, uh, what we call asphalt. And when do you actually get into this? I, I'm assuming that's not really part of like a, it's not a big part of the trip. That's the sort of getting there to it. Is that, is that the case? Oh, it's correct. always good. It's always good fun to do a thousand kilometers in a day, Jim. <laughs> um, but it, it really was just about knocking some distance between home and, and the holiday and, getting into the holiday as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Where does it really start? Where, where does the, um, the ride for you guys really start? Oh, probably day two, I'd yes. say. It was day two, for sure. That was only 800 kilometers. <laughs> but we, so we traveled day, through. Day one's 1,000 kilometers. Day two is going to be 800. Mm. Yep. And is there day three, we this? were knackered. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, there was. Okay, a fair but bit. Mike, talk about that day. Uh, so we left Coomarina, which was the, the first stop um, for the night, and then went to a couple of towns and, and just got chatting to the locals. Ben's good at that. What's good around here? Where, where can we go? What can we see? Um, so we went to Marble Bar, which is known as the, the hottest place in Western Australia. So we, we visited there and went to a couple of places around there that was essentially off-road but relatively straightforward. Um, but the, the they also recommended we go to a place called um, the Dorlina Gorge and Coppen Gap, which um, involved um, off-road riding, which was wonderful, and, and seeing some gorges and, and some water. Um, we'll certainly send you that photo, actually, of, of Coppen Gap because yeah. that, was, that was fascinating. Yeah. Um, and also riding through um, the Shea Gap, um, that was also off-road, um, and we ended up um, skirting around the, um, the Great Sandy Desert um, and ended up, at the end of the day, um, quite late, about half past seven, um, at um, 80 Mile Beach, which um, is literally on the beach. We went for a beach ride the next day, which was fun. Um, but yeah, that was just a fantastic day. Again, as, as Ben was saying before, different scenery, different rock formations, different ground surfaces uh, to ride on, plenty of water. That's where we did our first crossing, uh, the, the De Grey River crossing, which we were a bit petrified of, but was, <laughs> was, uh, was straightforward at the end of the day. 
So yeah, it was it was fantastic, and that's that's when it really started compared to day one. I'm curious about this water crossing, Ben. Can you talk about the water crossing? That first water crossing. <laughs> she, um, she a terror. <laughs> it, it was it was coming on dusk at that point. The expanse looked huge, and at that particular time, the the water was flowing quite well. Jim, it was. Yeah, it was it's still. a normally dry landscape up there, and because of the significant wet, the there's normally a big, long, dry riverbed that you you got to cross, right? And they don't look too daunting. But this thing had the water coursing over the over the road as it was. It t- turned out it was a causeway. I mean, it was concrete under which you know shouldn't take away from the drama that was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we uh, set up the GoPros. But I, t- I tell you what, once once you got into the water. Remembering that it was quite hot at that, that point, still quite hot, we got into the water and it was just straight away. It was like a revelation that this is this is easy. And uh, um, Mike was right up front. I was in the middle, and I think Nevin no Nevin was in the middle, and I was behind with the cameras going. And just having that water wash up over the top of the bike as we increased the speed, it got a little bit deeper towards the end. It wasn't just three inches, but it was a reasonable amount of water. And uh, as soon as we got over, I just said, can we go back and do that again? <laughs> so you can get another yeah, shot, great. you mean? Or just because it was oh, fun? Oh, no, just, just to the sheer satisfaction of, of right. crossing water of that distance and in those, those conditions. It was, it was easy because it, was, it wasn't the riverbed underneath. Um, it was the causeway. Mm-hmm. All, most of the other, um, there was only one other causeway crossing that we did, which is the one we alluded to in the picture. Uh, all the rest were was very stony and sandy crossings, but this was a, a good first one in that it was uh, concreted over as a causeway. We don't build bridges here on most of those because the number of vehicles that need to go over it is just so few. Yep. Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So, um, so th- this was this was just day two, eight hundred kilometers. It seems like a, a like a lot of miles to do on on off road stuff. So I imagine there's a lot of you know, the of the the drier road, flatter road that you can ride uh, that you were talking about there that you still have to watch for for rocks and things like that. Um, so does it get progressively worse after this? As far as more, or I should say, more challenging, more fun after this? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. There's that that section was a, a little bit of. There was a deviation from the plan on the day, which is what we decided to do and which took us off-road for that. And that's the, the part of the adventure that we're trying to get into. Our, our rule is anything but the but the highway. Mm-hmm. So that opportunity presented on day two. Day three um, was a, essentially a rest day and day four, the same, travelling on bitumen to the next location. It probably wasn't until about day seven or eight that we finally got full time onto the dirt roads and that, that was the start of the Gibb River Road. In the meantime, it was highway then going off-road um, to the, loca- the, the locations that we wanted to go, which were off-road. And they were, they were all challenging enough and exciting enough and that lots of river crossings, none with causeways this time. Um, so that was a, a real highlight for us. But the first seven days, eight days, interspersed with a fair bit of asphalt. Yeah. Did I say it right? Yeah, <laughs> it was it was about the fifth day where we went into Punalulu because that was yep. really the start of us deviating off the off the highway and and heading into more four wheel drive uh, not four wheel drive sorry more adventure bike kind of terrain. Is that where riding. the Gibb River Road starts? No, that was 
what one of the main roads we wanted to go on, which which came off the Gib River Road, uh, was still shut. So we shifted our trip around just to waste a bit more time getting up there. I say waste; it was still part of the trip anyway. But we essentially reversed it, didn't we? Yeah, and just to buy a little bit more time because one of the key spots we wanted to get to was still on a closed road waiting to be opened. And, and yeah, so we weren't quite on the Gibb River Road yet, but the, the Purnalulu National Park um, is quite iconic in Western Australia as well. So we went in there and spent a couple of nights in there seeing what was in there. And, and the ride into there was fantastic. Technically difficult, but it was a, a smaller dirt road, creek crossings, winding around creeks and valleys and up and over hills. And it, that was a great ride. And and part of the plan for this trip, I, I, I gather, was that you were going to be wild camping and sort of remote all the time? Uh, it was a mixture. That was the plan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know it changed it like Argob. But, but I'm saying <laughs> to begin with, that was the plan, though. We, yeah. we we discovered bars and cold beer and hot showers. <laughs> you got distracted, just a bit. Um, this is in the Kimberley area um, that we're talking about. So, so um, are you are you on the Gibb River Road at this point? Not yet. Day eight was the Gibb River Road. And what is that like when you pull up to that? Describe what it looks like. It, it's it's actually quite um, at the start of the Gibb River Road at the very top. It's there's a very um, successful commercial tourist enterprise there called El Cuestro, and it, it's well catered for. Um, it's resort like actually. So the start of the Gibb River Road is, is is really quite easy. The from that point forward was where it gets adventurous. You, you get to the iconic Pentecost River, which is a as a major river up in the Kimberley there, and the one that everyone puts on YouTube that they cross in their forebears, et cetera, et cetera. That's where the real Gibb River Road starts in my book. Yeah, I think so. Talk more about this, this crossing. So this is a, a crossing everybody likes to put in that they're, that they're making it across. What's the, what's the challenge? It's about 300 metres long. It, it's tidal. Um, so at any particular time of the day, it, it could be as, as deep as 600 mils on a, on a day um, or less. It's inhabited by the crocodiles. Saltwater crocodiles, um, Jim. The big nasty ones. Oh. The nasty ones. It's it's very rocky. It has baby heads underneath. So it, it is it is not simple drive through. You've got to really negotiate the Pentecost River. So for those who don't know, the tidal river is is when the, when the tide comes in, this is from the ocean, it tends to, when the tide rises, it flows up some rivers. And then when it drops back down, it flows back out. Now this is timed. So you should have times where you can tell exactly what height it'll be at any given day or, or any given time. Is that correct? Well, you might not believe this, Jim, but Benny was not quite that anal on this one. <laughs> really? Because... <laughs> You know that that makes a big difference because you also get to know are you are you uh, crossing it while it's rising or are you crossing it while it's falling? I mean, this is very this is important stuff if you're spending much time there. It, it we probably should have spent more time on that because Derby, which is at the other end of the Great River Road, uh, Gibb River Road, uh, has a tide of nine meters. Wow. So, so is that that's a, that, is that a crossing and a nine meter difference? No, no, that's no. a. 
that Turby is a town on the on actually on the coast. Because some of what can happen here with the rivers, with with the tidal rivers, and I'm sure you guys know, but other people may not know, is that you can look at it one minute and it can be calm looking. And then as the tide is going in or coming out, it can start to rush and it can get really, really fast. Depending on the river, it can be it can be a total rapids. So I, I don't, I, I don't, know I what don't that think like. this crossing has that kind of history. So there, there certainly is some movement with the tides. Maybe it's a bit further enough inland. I, I'm not quite sure to be able to answer that, but it's, it, it's not like, yeah, water is going to be hugely rushing one way or the other depending on the tide, mm. but there's just a difference in the, the height of the water. Probably what has more of an impact is how close to the end of the wet season you are. Um, and because it's quite a wide crossing, the deeper it is, it, it gets significantly wider as well. So as Ben was saying, it, it's the crossing is full of rocks, uh, you know, about the size of a football really, uh, and that's the bed. And, you know, that can be quite intimidating on a fully loaded adventure bike to stay upright in that kind of environment. Well, it doesn't sound so bad. I mean, some big uh, rocks that you have to ride through and you're riding through water that's moving and, and you got some saltwater crocs. I mean, uh, I can I can certainly see how it's fun. I, I'm yeah. sure Ben got the video camera set up for this right before he started. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. <laughs> to get, so did you guys make the crossing okay? We certainly did. Okay, t- talk about the crossing. Who went first? Uh, this this was Nevin. Um, we, we call his bike Pigger. <laughs> Jim, mainly because of the way he treats it. <laughs> Pigger. P-I-G-G-A. Pigger. It's a well, pig of a bike. That's what they're referring to, Jim. I think it's, it's terribly unkind. But. <laughs> so, so, Nevin, you're not really calling it Pigger. Mike and Ben are. Oh, I, I do call it Pigger in jest, but um, it's a term of endearment. Okay. And, and Pigger's got a bit of an issue crossing water? She it, does. She, it, she, was, she wasn't... Um, she was missing, and we we're not, we haven't diagnosed it yet. But it was in the deep water; it it'd lose power, and it go per 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 per. So hence the per per So the bike that misfires, you send through first. Correct. Right. And he's also the shortest bloke. Right. So so Evan, talk about the crossing. What was that like when you when you're sitting there getting ready to go? Um, it, it is intimidating because you're looking at all these big rocks at the start of the crossing because you, you can see through the water, you know, a fair way. And then when you lift your eyes up and look to the other side, it's hundreds of metres away. And you, you think, how am I ever going to make this without falling over? And, you know, that is a probably an incentive for me because, as Ben said, I'm a bit shorter than Ben and Mike. And so I'm quite conscious of trying to stay upright all the time because I, I, putting my leg down to stop a fall is not as much of an option for me. So I'm looking out across all this and just thinking there's just no way I can fall off here. And on top of that, I've got this bike that as soon as it gets a bit of deep water, you know, and, and loses power. Um so, yeah, I was a bit nervous and um, th- I think about 15 metres in, I hit a bit of a soft spot and uh, I think the bike got, I can't quite remember exactly what happened, but I stopped. It could have been a bit of the pu- 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 uh, but uh, I stopped uh, and I was able to put my feet down, thankfully, 
um, and got a little bit bogged in some of this really loose big rocks. Um, sounds hard getting bogged in that, but we managed to get going again and uh, away we went, all three of us. We, we've great. all got different styles, uh, Jim, of, of riding the river. I, I noticed with some interest how Nevin's very technical and precise rider and, and he will he will use his throttle and clutch very carefully and maintain his balance because he doesn't want to have to put his foot down because he might not be able to. Mm-hmm. Mike, Mike, Mike is much more softer on the throttle because he, he's got long legs and he, he puts his foot down. So quite often Mike was doing a, the duck waddle. <laughs> and uh, whereas my, my style is just hit it hard and momentum is your friend, even if it bucks you and throws you this way and that way. And it, and it worked out for us. Um, Nevin generally was able to cross that issue and um, despite me, careening all over the place, crossing the river, I stayed upright. And, and Mike, well, he just had wet boots. And I think over the 50 crossings, 50 crossings apart from Mike's uh, millimetre deep of water tipping the bike over in the edge of the creek, 50 crossings and, and not one of us threw our bike in the drink. So that, oh, that was great. And, and you've got to remember we had 70 kilos of loaded up luggage. Yeah. Fuel, water, tent, all that sort of stuff. Now, saltwater crocs. Just, I want to talk a little bit about what they do as far as how they how they they move around. Do they sit on the bottom or anything like that? They they most of the time lying and half in the water and half on the beach or the rocks, sunning themselves, staying warm. But if they're hunting, yeah, if they're hunting, you would you you might not even see them. They they can see either their, their heads under and they can see up, or you might just see an eyeball. Which you know you'd be pretty clever if you could spot an eyeball, um, but yeah, more often than not, you just don't see them. So when you're making this crossing, the potential is there for saltwater crocs. How heavy does this does this sort of lay on your mind as you're making the crossing? And if you're not used to it anyway, um, when, when you it, stop, you look left and you look right. <laughs> and what are you going to do though? Well, at least you know it's coming. <laughs> well, I guess you can say something on the comms and say this is it. Um, did did you check it out ahead of time? Do you stop and look at it and say, okay, we're going to look for for signs of of crocs around here or anything, or do you just sort of make your crossing and deal with it? To some degree, to some degree, but it, it's not overbearing. You, you you just you just seeing the the crossing in front of you and and you're going. Um, if you got to deal with that along the way, it's just it's it's rare. It's it's a ever-present danger and real, but it's it's rare enough for you not to worry about it. The other thing to take into account, Jim, is that we, we, we have to do the crossing because we're not going to turn around and go back. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly, for me, it, it um, added to the, the nerves and the anxiety of, of crossing it um, to the point where we all crossed and everyone was excited. Um, ben and Evan were happy to um, hop off and take a photo. I just wanted to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> You'd had enough. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it was enough for me. I yeah. just wanted to keep riding. Um, ben, um, since you do all the planning for this, and you, you're more uh, more of a planner and more of a, a list maker, can you talk about the procedure for a saltwater crocodile attack? How, how do you how, how do you handle that? <laughs> oh no, it doesn't come into my mind at all, Jim. Um, I look. I don't think you'd have a procedure if that. If you happen to be unfortunate enough to have to deal with that, nothing's going to help you, mate. Yeah, that's it. You're, you're it's as simple as that. 
Yeah. The croc doesn't have any weak spot or something. You poke it in the eye and it lets go or nothing like that. Don't I? We're not all like crocodile Dundee over here, Jim. <laughs> You're not. That's uh, weird. I wouldn't have set up this interview if I had known that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, that is an interesting crossing. But but you had a whole bunch of these. You said you did 50 crossings. Uh, are they all this sort of crossing? No, no, not at all. There, if you, there's there's small small crossings, large crossings, but there was about 50 water crossings in, in total in the whole trip. And um, so, some of them were sandy and deep. And most of them were, were, were rocky, but, you know, reasonably shallow. And some were a combination of both. One, one, of, the, one of the more exciting uh, roads we took was to um, the Mornington Wilderness Camp. And the, the last crossing into that place after um, about a 70-kilometre ride inland from the Gibb River Road, um, was was one of those typical crossings which look innocent enough which you enter, but the rise out was quite steep and, of course, at the bottom, swallows the whole bike. So those are the sorts of challenges we had with water crossings. We just didn't know what we were going to come across, but they were in the way of where we wanted to get, so we just There's had to probably, do. What do you reckon? There was about oh, maybe a dozen that were challenging or technically difficult crossings? About a dozen, you reckon? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The Pentecost, the Durac, the the crossing into the El Questro campsite, that was the interesting. Manning. The, Manning. Yep, the Manning. And then a few of the larger sort of creek crossings, like the one that Ben was just talking about, were were quite deep. Um, but certainly our confidence went from four out of ten to you know, probably nine and a half or ten out of ten. We knew that we could do them because we'd been doing them for the best part of three weeks. So, at the end of the day, we just towards the end of the trip, we just we just did them. It, it was it was great. What level of uh, of skill do you think you need to ride the route that you guys did on the Gibber River Road at that time? Um, That's out of, a very it, subjective question. Yeah, if you said out of five, or maybe say out of ten, I don't know six. Would be my guess. I don't, I don't, most of it was I, relatively I, straightforward. I reckon for most of it, yeah, probably six. But some of the water crossings, I think you'd need a bit better than that. Mm. So you're looking at it's sort of advanced skills for some of these water crossings. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you got to be pretty competent. So um, other challenges that, that were on the Gibber River Road, can you talk about that, Mike? Um, other challenges, probably. Um, coming across cows, birds, big eagles that that um, it's slow to might, take off. Yeah, yeah, they they sort of struggle to get up into the air in a hurry. So if they turn the wrong way, they might fly straight into you. Um, but other than that, the the Gibb River Road itself was was as we've said, it was iconic. It was more interesting to do all the the stuff off to the side, um, and really as a challenge. I don't want to denigrate it, but the Gibb River Road itself was was relatively straightforward. You know, if people are doing it in four-wheel drives with caravans, um, doing it on an adventure bike really is relatively straightforward, I believe. Apart from the Pentecost crossing. Yes. Yeah, that's the, that's the difficult one. And, and the Durac, depending on when you, what time of the year you're there, because that was quite deep and long and soft. What, what other highlights did you have on the trip? Being on the road. I think just being out on the road, it's a fantastic feeling. 
Um, you're, you're free of the pressures of your life back in the city, if you like. Uh, you're out amongst the, the landscape, um, which I think a, a lot of adventure riders having a bit of an affinity with the landscape and you just love being in amongst it. And, you know, that's certainly true in my case. And, and I think being being a long way from your comfortable home, uh, you know, there's just a, a feeling of achievement about doing that. Every day exploring something new, every day knowing you get you, you pack up and you're going somewhere different. You're going somewhere new. You got a whole raft of different challenges, um, unexpected highlights which you didn't plan for, Jim. Um, I mentioned the Mornington um, Wilderness Camp. That to me, that stretch of road which hadn't been touched in two years due to COVID reasons, and the, the area being locked down entirely, um, was just virginal. Um, you were going through country which had suffered the ravages of two wet seasons, hadn't been repaired. So that that sort of unexpected delight and you're in a landscape that 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 is just so barren but at the same time so plentiful yeah majestic it it, it stim- stimulates your, your senses um just those challenges of the day-to-day um not knowing that was the highlight every day just just not knowing what what new thing would happen for you that day yeah what, ex- what experience we're gonna have yeah. I'd, I'd agree with what Ben said because I hadn't been up there before. So everything was new for me, absolutely. All the, the roads, the terrain, um, the, the the rock formations, you know, the size of the, the eagles, you know, the small tiny lizards and that, that sort of thing. But, but for me, having not done a trip like this before, um, you, you, you are testing yourself. So realizing at the end that you you can be self-reliant with everything that you need on your bike which which I love that sort of minimalist um, feeling compared to how we we normally live in our in our houses in our comforts uh, Ben um, you, you mentioned about uh, I think it was you that mentioned about there was a, there was sections where you had to watch your fuel and watch your water and things like that in those sections did, did you have any challenges with that did you actually no, none limits? whatsoever so you none you know, whatsoever jim yeah so is it um, that, they, that, the, that they aren't that great of sections really that you're that you have to worry about it or that you were just that prepared for it good planning good good planning but what we had planned for was to head about 560 kilometers off the gib river road um to one of the remotest boat ramps in australia um which doesn't have any facilities along it at all. Now, that's where our planning was to carry all the fuel and the water for, for the five days to manage because our, our bikes only have a range of about 300 kilometres in the dirt. So 560Ks was two tank loads um, with, with a little bit of a margin. As it turns out, that road re- remained closed for the whole of the trip, so we didn't get to have the need to use what we'd planned to use. And as it turned out, there was enough... Um, it was only one fuel stop, really, along the whole Gib River Road. So we were fine. So what tips do you have for other people who would be considering doing the Gib River Road? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's it's just awesome. assume they've already got to that point and they've passed that and they've checked that off the box. <laughs> one of my constant tips for these sorts of long rides, Jim, is 
ride with people you know because it, if you go with people who you haven't ridden with much or haven't camped five, six or nights in a row in the bush with, um, you, you know, you, people have different expectations about what's achievable in a day and what's not, you know, what's a long way and what's not. So I, I think for my part of what made our trip relatively easy is that we all have similar expectations around what's possible and what's not. Um, and so that you don't get this tension in the group about, oh, no, we, we don't want to go that far today or, you know, can't we stop and camp now? Um, so I think cho- choose your pack who you ride with on an extended ride like that. Mm. The other thing that we did was um, aside from where we stopped in towns and camped at local campgrounds where we would have a meal, a decent meal at a pub or, or a restaurant. Um, when we were wild camping, the the meals that we that we took were relatively basic. It was just literally fuel for for our bodies, so nothing glorified there. Um, just something that's straightforward, easy to pack. Um, you don't have to worry about preparing, you know, some three course meal. Um, you don't need a lot of clothes, minimal clothes, obviously packing light with sleeping mats or small tents or um, depending, everyone's different, but packing light. Um, uh, certainly have a spot tracker because you are going to a remote, uh, a remote place. Um, you, that That's a necessity. Take a first aid kit because you never know. We only used it for, you know, small cuts and abrasions, that sort of thing. But, but uh, that was important. Uh, and coffee. You need coffee. <laughs> coffee in the morning was good. Yeah. yeah. It was a good start to the day. And the other rule that we have as well is that whenever we get to a spot is that we don't immediately hop off our bikes and start setting up camp. We hop off the bikes, get our chair, and just sit down and have a cup of tea or a drink of some sort and just enjoy where we are because we've just got there. Um have a chat for half an hour or so, and then set up camp. Um, just relax into the into the the evening. Sort of to take some time to take in where, where you're at, rather than getting caught mm. up in the routine. Yeah, yeah, and what you've sense. done yeah. to get there. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, and any other tips? I think if you if you're considering taking a left turn or a right turn because something looks interesting, just do it. Check it out. Um, if 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 nothing's there or it isn't what you expected, then you just turn around. But uh, you never know what's there. You've got to go and you know continue that adventure. We're always doing that. Um, let's Stay let's go the down highway. there. Yeah. Yep. Stay off the highway. There's so many things that are undiscovered when you get off the highway. But perhaps what, one of the things that helps us do that with confidence is um, we have some pretty good navigation tools, I suppose. We, we've got a good set of maps and a, and a good system to be able to view those, which we can pretty much go anywhere and and work out where we are and how to get out or where we need to go from there. And know how steep the terrain is yeah. that you're coming up to. Yeah. What What is this system you have? Uh, it's um, it, The app we use is called Memory Maps, which actually I think is a… It's American. Quite, uh, is it American or Canadian? Yeah. I can't quite remember, but that, that that platform or that app on our phone is is quite incredible. Um, and then we've we've since built maps that we've we've put into it, which have a lot of detail for 
uh, for Australia at this stage. I, I suppose we, we you can take the left or right turn, but when you look on the map, you kind of go, okay, I think this looks like we could do something like this or like that. And that that's just our style, you know, probably me and Ben more than Mike. But we, we're always confident that if we go somewhere, we, we know where to go from there in order to keep Or how to get out. To get out. <laughs> it's always handy, isn't it? <laughs> you, you, at the end, you guys decided to ride bitumen asphalt the whole way back. Why did you choose that? Why not go back down through the Gibber River Road? It time comes to, at any point in any trip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you've, you've done the trip. Um, the intention was to get there and do the trip. From that point on, it was, well, let's go home. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of thought it was a smart way to do it because you, you, what you did is you, you allowed yourself by doing that and, and even the thousand kilometers uh, at the start of the trip, by, by doing those big stretches fairly quickly, you gave yourself more time for the stuff that you really wanted to experience. That, that's sort of what I saw with your, your planning. Yeah. And You're right, was, Jim. exactly was yeah. the intention. And, and, it, and it happened in reverse at, as well at the end. Um, it took us two and a half days to get from Perth to Broome um, to sort of be on the, the, the outskirts of the Kimberley. And then when we left Derby to come home, which is between 2,700 yeah, 2, Ks, um, we did that in about two and three quarter days um, because we knew – we knew we could do it in that time frame, so that meant we had more time in the middle of the trip to do all the things that we wanted to do. Well, Nevin, Mike, Ben, thank you very much for sharing your adventure, and well, I guess maybe I'll, I'll see you on that red, dusty road someday. We hope so, Jim. Happy to do it with you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, thanks for your time. speaking with Nevin Whitber, Ben Whitber, and Mike Beaton in Perth, Australia. We've got some great photos from their adventure in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Yeah, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this and listening to the show. If you enjoyed this one, please spread it around. Share it with your friends. Tell other people about it. It's great to get the word out. And if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you on iTunes or wherever it is you're finding your podcast because that helps other people find the show. We put a lot of work into this, and we'd really appreciate it if you could do that for us. One other thing I'd like to ask of you is this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work so if you don't mind drop by our website adventureriderradio.com 
click on support and have a look at what we've got there. Anything $10 or more gets you an adventure rider radio sticker to go on your pannier, your, any, somewhere on your motorcycle or your toolbox or wherever. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our raw show that we do once a month. That's another show. You need a different uh, subscription to it. Of course, it's a free download anywhere you find podcasts. Everything's available on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Warren Miller, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 